the book of Luke that we've been studying, Lord, that soil, that it's, uh, that it's, it's a good soil, that it's ready, that it's been plowed by the Holy Spirit, that it's been uh, fertile unto the good seed that would go right deep, Lord, and produce fruit. Uh, Lord, we ask you that you give us that heart tonight, though, that if, it came, if we came with a, a broken heart, Lord, or a, or a hardened heart, Lord, uh, Lord, you would plow, you would plow through, and, and Lord, cause it to be good, and cause it to be a good soil to, to receive the word tonight, Lord. Uh, open our minds, Lord God, to respond, Lord, to with faith, Lord, and believe that you're going to make it, uh, Lord, you're going to make it happen. Whatever situation we're in, Lord, we trust you, that, Lord, that you would prepare a people for your own name in these days. So, Lord, we ask you tonight, please reveal your word to us, Lord God, that we would be uh, quick to listen, Lord, and quick to action. And whatever you have put in our hearts to do tonight, Lord, help us to do that, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. How to live in the last days. Now, we've been talking about uh, some prophecy up there. We're not going to get into that too much today. Uh, although there's much to talk about, we'll leave that for next week because so much of today is so important, uh, especially dealing with some of the things Paul is going to talk about here, how to live in the last days. In Titus chapter 2, the first 10 verses deal with Christianity in the home, Christianity in the home. And if Christianity does not work at home, it doesn't work at all. That's the, that's the point of Titus chapter 2. If Christianity is not lived at home, it's not lived at all. It begins in the home. Why is it in the home harder to live as a Christian? Why is it harder to live as a Christian at home, harder to live out your faith? Uh, many times it's because they know us better, because we're more who we are at home. We tend to be uh, less of a show at home. Uh, our hair's down. Um, when we're grumpy, when we're mad, when we're uh, needy, when we're, you name it, it's at home. And so the people that know us the most are able to tell us the most how we live our faith. And so we all can come very nicely dressed on a Sunday, but what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc., counts just as much. In fact, if it's not lived at home, it's not lived at all. And so Paul begins with this first 10 verses about teaching older men. Older men are to teach, uh, Titus is to teach the older men to be examples in the fellowship. We read that in the first three verses, first two verses. Uh, there'll be reverent, temperate, sound, and faith. Good examples of mature Christianity is with older men. And the older word here, it, it has to do with somebody uh, mature in the faith, but also older in age that older men are to behave like older men. They're to be the examples of maturity, of faith. Somebody that's walked with the Lord for years, they're to be the examples. He's to speak to the older women, and the older women have an interesting job because Titus is to speak to them as older women to encourage them in their faith, but he's also to speak to them so that they could teach the younger women. And that is the ministry that we talked about last week. That is a vital ministry in any church, and our fellowship is that older women teach younger women. Now, sometimes younger women don't like to hear from older women because they think they know it all, and that's, that's, uh, uh, that's quite a thing, uh, that we can't relate to the older women because they don't know what I'm going through, and in reality, they could teach a lot to the younger women. And sometimes the older women are not willing to teach the younger women 
because they feel inadequate. They feel like, wait a minute, my house is not even right with the Lord. How am I going to be able to teach somebody something that I don't quite know how to do yet? And yet the Bible tells us that they're to teach their younger women, to teach them, to show them how to love their husbands and to love their children. That's the first two things that younger women are to learn from the older women, how to love their husbands and how to love their children. How to, um, those two things are primary things in the home. Uh, with their children, uh, how to love their children, how to love their husbands. And older women have gone through that. They have, they have lived their faith. They have raised their children. They can teach a lot to the younger women that are going through the stress of rearing new ones, uh, raising up uh, teenagers, raising up uh, uh, toddlers. They can learn a lot from the older women. And they're to be discreet. They're to teach them to be homemakers. And we talked about that. Has, uh, uh, th- that in some feminist groups may cause me to be out of any church. Uh, homemakers is the word idea. Is they have to be uh, ma- uh, uh, builders of the home. That's really the word. Builders of the home. Who can build a home better than a woman? No one. Right? Who can build a home? I'm not talking about architecturally. I'm talking about in a godly way. Building a home where the children can learn the word of God, when their children can learn their faith, when the, where the husbands can come and they can be loved and respected and honored in that home, the women do a masterful job. But they're to learn that, okay? And they have to learn that, how to be homemakers. And if, not that women cannot get involved with anything else, but it begins in the home. That's the point. If your home is right, you can build as high as you want. If your home's not right, whatever you build is going to fall eventually if not built, it's going to build like the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's just going to be off kilter for a long time. If it's built at home right, you can build as high as you want. And that's the point. How do they learn this? It's from older women. Now, Titus is not to teach the younger women. Did you hear that? Titus is not to teach the younger women. Very wise thing to remember. Number one, avoids temptation. Avoids any kind of weird uh, experiences there and immorality. But also the fact that he doesn't have an experience as an older woman. Uh, Titus is not a woman, so he can't teach the younger women how to be respectful to, uh, you know, in the home, how to love their husband, how to love their children. And so he's to leave that to the older women. That's a vital, vital ministry. So older ladies here in this fellowship, be an example and teach the younger women. Now, in this sense, the word speak there in verse 1 has to do with teaching. But it's not teaching from the pulpit. It's teaching in the home. That has to do with the teaching in the home. How do you teach in the home? Uh, you have to go to their home. You have to go to their house. As you're, as you're being at home with them, you teach these things. And I showed you an example last week of, Richard, uh, of uh, Pastor Richard Baxter. He was a wonderful pastor back in the 1600s. And his whole ministry was built upon teaching at home. He would take Mondays and Tuesdays of his normal weekly uh, study and sermon preparation, and he would go and he would stop from house to house and he would teach in each house the word of God to every family. He would ask for the families to be there and he would open up the Bible and he would begin to teach what the Bible says, what their husband's role is, what the wife's role is, what the children's role is, and how the families to be together and pray together. And he would teach and he would go to the next house and the next house and he would do that from sun up to sun down, Monday and Tuesday every day of his ministry in that area in England. Wonderful ministry. And it's been said that when Richard Baxter got to 
when he went to Kidderminster, that's where he lived, there were hardly any Christian homes. When he left, there was hardly, uh, there was hardly any home that was not a Christian home. That's how much impact he had on the community, by simply teaching at home. And he said of himself that he had more impact teaching at homes than he did teaching from a pulpit. And he was a wonderful teacher. That tells you a lot about home fellowships. Tells you a lot about where faith is lived. It's lived in the home. And if it's not lived in the home, it's not lived at all. So forget about coming here and putting on a show. First be a Christian at home. Then you can be a Christian here. Okay, I would rather you be a Christian at home and start there than come put on a show here and deceive even yourself. And so be a Christian at home first. Then come here and now still come. Don't, don't, don't get the wrong idea. Still come. But come because you're a Christian at home. Don't come because you're trying to be a Christian here. <laughs> come because you're a Christian at home. And that's the verse... The first ten, uh, ten verses has to do with the older men, the younger women, the older women. Uh, verse 9 has to do with the slaves. And the, the word slave there is staff, basically the household staff, those who uh, worked as domestic staff in the homes and in those at the Roman Empire. There was lots of homes that had slaves, that had domestic staff, and they're to be a good example of the home. And so we get to verse, we've got to go back to verse 7 very quickly. We go to the first slide. Um, I wanted to show you a, a hymn from last week. Serge, if you can have that one. This is a hymn by Horatius Bonar. It's called, Fill My Heart, O God. Fill My Heart, O God. And it has to do with uh, living in the home. Serge, I think, I think we got the wrong PowerPoint. Do the second one that I sent over. And I think, I think we'll get to that one in a moment. Horatius Bonar wrote this beautiful hymn and it has to do with living at home. Christianity begins in the home. Fill my heart, O God, with the things that please the Lord. And his speech and his conduct has to be lived at home. Let's go to verse 7, and we'll start there. Because Timothy is to do a few things. Timothy is to do a few things. Number one, he's to be a minister, a pastor, a teacher, but he's to be an example. Look at verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. Remember, Titus is all about sound doctrine leads to good works, good deeds. Sound doctrine, good deeds. Bad doctrine, bad deeds. Why do people fall into sin and immorality and justify it all the time? Bad teaching, bad doctrine. They begin with bad doctrine and end up with bad behavior. Bad immoral behavior. You begin to justify sin. You begin to deal with sin in a, in a light manner because of wrong doctrine. Here, Timothy, uh, Titus is to be an example of good works. You start with sound doctrine, and you lead to good works. And it says here that he's to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound of speech, that cannot be condemned, that the one who's an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say to you. He's to be three things. One, he's to be a person of integrity, somebody that could be relied on, person of integrity. Titus is to be a person that somebody can rely on him. Number two, he's to be reverent. The word reverent has to do with he is to be somebody who is not there to entertain people. 
Okay, that's a big part of it. Uh, in, our, in our generation today, we feel like we should come to church because uh, we like to be entertained. Entertain is a, entertainment is a huge industry in, the, in, in, in America. It's probably the biggest industry in America. Millions, billions of dollars on entertainment. And we, we like it because it entertains us. It takes our minds off things. But the Bible tells us that the study of the Word of God is not supposed to be an entertainment like you're looking for entertainment. If you're looking for entertainment, don't find it in the Bible necessarily. You should find it in other things. Go watch a movie or something. But the Bible tells us that Titus is to be somebody who is reverent. doesn't mean to be a prude. doesn't mean to be somebody that can smile or can enjoy things. It's talking about that he's serious about his faith. Wouldn't you want somebody that's serious about their faith? I mean, a lot of times we hear, uh, many times, and it's, 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 it goes on and on and on. Uh, pastors who like to tell jokes all the time at the you know, church. I don't mind a joke here now and then, but that's all they do. It's just jokes. And it's a lot of it about themselves. <laughs> um, now, I don't mind telling jokes about myself in a, in, you know, in a candid manner. I like to uh, you know, smile and things like that. But if it's just for entertainment, what's the point? Okay. Um, many times we think church should be entertaining. It shouldn't be boring. That's one thing. Uh, it shouldn't be boring, but it should not be an entertainment show, okay, entertainment show. And um, what happens is we look for entertainment in the church, and we'll never match, churches will never match entertainment like there is in the world. You guys know that? The world has plenty of entertainment. You want entertainment, go find it there. But if you want the truth, if you want serious faith, then you find it in the Word of God. You find it in good churches. Um, like I said, it doesn't have to be boring, but it should be serious about our faith. We should have a seriousness about our faith. Uh, the world will give you lots of entertainment. You can watch a sporting show. You can go to a movie. You can go to a drama. You can go to whatever kind of things. And so people come to church looking for entertainment. Guess what they're going to find? Not that fun. It's not that entertaining like it is in Vegas or it is in, in other places. So people try to match the entertainment of the world and bring it into the church. And they say, ah, oh, church is boring. And they leave. It's a thing with youth groups, too, the same thing. They try to match the entertainment, match it, match it, match it. And it's, they'll never match it. They'll never match what the world has. And so our focus doesn't have to be entertainment. It shouldn't be boring, but it should be serious faith and serious truth so people can be edified, so people can live their faith out in the world. If we just give entertainment here, you may have a laugh or two, but that's all you're going to get. And you'll remember the jokes about the dog, and you'll remember the jokes about this, and you'll go home and go, what was that joke about the dog? That was funny, huh? And you'll remember nothing about how to live godly, how to live at home, how to live in a Christian faith. And, and yet the Bible says that's what's going to edify you. That's what's going to last. Entertainment is not going to last. And so Timothy is to be reverent. That doesn't mean, remember, doesn't mean that he can be personable or cack a smile or, or be friendly, but it is to be serious about their faith. I like people that are serious about their faith because I know I can count on them. No, they're not flakes. I can count on somebody who has a serious view of their faith. He's to have dignity. He's to be uh, incorruptible in sound of speech. Dignity. He's to be incorruptible. Okay, that's a, that's a pattern of good pastors. This is, Titus is a good pastor. Uh, let's go to the, uh, verse 15. I want to show you something else too. Uh, Timothy's to be to have authority. Verse 15 says, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Many times we think that when, uh, and this happens to me all the time, 
somebody comes to me and they ask me for either prayer or counsel, something like that, and, and I give them the word of God. I'm not going to give them my opinion. If it's my opinion, I'll, I'll tell you, this is my opinion. I can't find a specific verse dealing with that, but my opinion is this. Even that I have to qualify as an opinion. But when I tell you the word of God, I, it, it's not a suggestion. Many times people come to church and say, well, I want to hear what the pastor said. I want to hear what the Bible says about it as if it's a suggestion box, okay? Suggestion box, let's pull out what it says. Okay, it, we, you may want to do this. <laughs> uh, you may want to apply these things to your life. And many times we take the Bible to be a suggestion box. Let's pull out what it says. Oh, okay, well, you know, I may not do it, I may not do it. The Bible is an authority. The Bible is true authority. And, and, and all Christians have to agree on one thing. There's nothing more authoritative than the word of God. When we're talking scripture here, there's nothing higher. It is it. I, I don't care if I have a, a, a different opinion or if I like my opinion. I have to come to submission to what God says. Like it or not, it is ultimate authority in life and practice, as evangelicals used to say. Uh, they used to say that. Now they don't say that much. But uh, we should say it. It's all authority in life and practice, meaning that whatever I apply to my life and however I walk, the Word of God has ultimate authority, no matter what I think, no matter what my opinion is, and no matter what my feelings are, because my feelings change. I can feel one way today, one way tomorrow. The Word of God is always going to be an anchor. You'll know where you are if you just focus on the Word of God. And so Titus is not to give suggestions. He's to preach with all authority. Exhort and rebuke. Now, I'll tell you what that means. Exhort and rebuke. Everybody likes exhorting. All right? Because it means encouragement. All right? Everybody, everybody encouragement? I want to hear encouragement. All right? Commending you to the Lord. Commending you to the Word of God. Commending you to the truth. Praise God. We need that encouragement. But it also says to rebuke. And nobody likes to be rebuked. But the Bible says he's to do that. The Bible says that's also a part of pastoral ministry that nobody likes. Everybody likes to have the pastor who encourages. But nobody wants to come when the pastor could rebuke you. And Titus is to rebuke that. Remember, Titus is teaching in Crete, in an island, where there's all these little churches that have been infiltrated with false teachers. There's little homes, all these little home Bible studies that Paul and Titus had planted. Now he's, it's time to set up leaders. But the false teachers have crept in. Now he's got to deal with them. So he's got to go in each of these studies, in each of these homes, in each of these churches, and begin to set things straight. What are you teaching here? And if somebody's, oh, well, we believe that Jesus is this, then he's to go, well, that's nice. Anyone else? You know, he's to stop them, literally. Uh, I know it's a, it's, it's a PC world out there, right? And it doesn't mean personal computers. It simply means political correctness, right? It's a political correct world that you can't really say anything to anybody. Otherwise, you might be offending them. And that's the world in which we live in, like it or not. Uh, the Bible is in a different, it's a different atmosphere. The Bible is in a different world. That's what people can't even understand it. How can you say that you have to rebuke somebody? Well, if they're teaching something that's wrong, it's like an infectious disease. It's just, just kind of spread like Ebola. And we talk about Ebola right now. Everybody's concerned about that, and rightly so. Just imagine false doctrine just spreading like Ebola. Now, Ebola may send somebody to their grave. It's terrible. It's horrible. False doctrine may send somebody to hell which is, it's, it's much, much more worse. Much more worse? Yeah. Much more worse, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's an incredible eternity if you think about how much false doctrine can spread and how it, it leads to uh, damnation. But 
Titus is to stop them, literally to put a gag order on them, to gag them, meaning to, hey, you can't speak that. You can't say that about Jesus. You can't say that about the resurrection. You can't speak like that about the Lord. Uh, Whatever that is, even if they're nice about it, and he's to rebuke them, which means he's to warn them, and he's to literally to criticize them, to take a teaching that they have. Let's just say for a moment, Jesus is an ascended master or some kind of wonderful teacher, you know, a spiritual being who ascended into Christhood. Um, we shouldn't stay, we shouldn't say, oh, interesting. Never heard of that. Never thought about that. Did you hear about that? I need to look into that. And we go home. We're not to treat it like that. We should say, hey, excuse me, what's your name? What did you say about Jesus? I don't find that in the Bible. You're not supposed to be teaching that. And if you keep teaching that, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't really open your mouth in this fellowship. Uh, you can open your mouth outside, but you can't open your mouth here if you're going to talk about Jesus like that. Why? Because that could spread in such an unbelievable way that somebody can take it and go, did you know, I never heard of that. That's really interesting. In my intro to religion class I'm taking in college, they believe the same thing about Jesus. And, oh, it's so cool that we're so open and creative about Jesus. And, and it could lead to, of course, if we have, look, there's lots of things that we can have variations in Scripture. Lots of things we can have an opinion about. But you can't have an opinion about Jesus that's different than the Scriptures. That is a, a doctrine that will send you straight to hell very, very quickly. Why? Unless you believe that he's God. Unless you believe that he's the Son of God, you can't be saved. You can't be forgiven of your sins. It's a very, very it's straightforward, the Bible says that he is the Son of God, and in him you have life, and without him you can't have eternal life. So uh, you're talking about a very exclusive <laughs> uh, doctrine in the Bible. It's, it's the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And, and one of the things that in the churches that Titus was ministering to, remember they had a, a Gnosticism. They had all these beliefs about Jesus, incredible wacky things about Jesus that you can, uh, I told you, you guys can find some of the library of Gnostics still today. You can find them. Uh, the, the, the movie Da Vinci Code is based on Gnostic uh, literature. Uh, but they had all these weird things about Jesus and they, they believed it. Plus, they also had Jewish legalism mixed in with Gnostic teachings. So you have a very confused, very, uh, um, very confused bodies of, of believers but also a doctrine that is it's damnable. The Bible calls it a damnable heresy because they were mixing in the grace of God and they were turning it into legalistic approaches to God. Certain behavior, certain patterns, certain um, uh, performances that you have. That, well, if I do this, if I eat this food, if I do this thing, then I'll be right with God. Plus Gnostic beliefs about Jesus, who he was and who he wasn't. And, and so all that together was what Titus was dealing with. And he's to rebuke them He's to exhort them, exhort some, rebuke some with all authority and let no one despise you. You think Titus was a very popular guy in some, some of these uh, home churches? And if you really like a guy that Titus said, hey, that guy's a false teacher, and you really like that false teacher, you think you like Titus coming around? No. Uh, they, they, in fact, the word here has to do with the fact that some of them may even not like Titus, and they actually despised him. They didn't want him around. Uh, talk, about, talk about a tough job. But you have to set things in order. That was, his, that was his commission by Paul. Go there, set up elders, and set things in order. What if they don't like me? Well, you have to deal with the word of God. You have to give them the word, encourage, and rebuke. Nobody likes the rebuking part, right? 
But you know what? It is necessary in our own lives. Because I can get things wrong. You can get things wrong. And I would rather have somebody tell me, hey, you know what? That thing you've been saying, you can't say that. It's wrong. If you keep saying that, you're, gonna, you're teaching false things. I'd rather have somebody tell me that and love and rebuke me than to pat me on the back and say, oh, man, that's great. You're doing great. Keep going. And I'm on the road to some, you know, to some, some false things that I've been leading into uh, myself and others. Now, he's to be a model of good deeds. He's to be a model of good doctrine. He's to be with dignity, incorruptibility. He's to be a guy you can rely on. That's what, a, that's what Titus is to be. He's supposed to be a good pastor. If you want to know what a good pastor is, you look at verse 7, verses, uh, verse 7 through 8, and also verse 15. That's a good pastor. That's somebody that I can, I can really follow. That's somebody that can say, you know what? He might, he might be uh, um, you know, sticking to the word of God too much, <laughs> but I'd rather have somebody there like that than somebody who's going to try to entertain me for entertainment's sake. And uh, we may not like the, you know, the personalities, but somebody like that, it's somebody that God has sent is a beautiful thing. Now, let's go to the next slide. Why are we to teach? Why are we to teach? Let's go to the next slide, Serge. Why are we to teach? No. No, no, no. You know, I think you have the wrong, uh, wrong PowerPoint. I sent you two. I sent it there. Why are we to teach? Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Why are we to teach? Why are we to teach? In verse 5, it says that the word of God may not be blasphemed. There's three motives for teaching. Three motives for teaching. uh, Verse 5, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The world is going to judge the gospel based on how we live. Did you know that? The world is going to judge the gospel based on how we live, not by what we say. That's, you can take it to the bank. The world is going to judge the gospel based on how you live. Take it to the bank. You can't, you can't deny it. I can, I can preach until I'm blue in the face. I can preach all I can, and I can sweat it out every single Sunday. But if that doesn't correlate to my home the world will blaspheme the word of God. Oh, that guy. Yeah, he says the right things, but look how he treats his wife. Look how he treats his children. Look how he's so lazy about the word of God. doesn't even do anything with it. The world will judge the gospel based on how we live, not by what we say. He said, Pastor, that's not fair. Like it or not. That's the way they're going to judge us, based on how we live, not what we're going to say. Why? Because the world has seen it. The world has seen it all. They've seen the the false guys. They've seen the hypocrites. They've seen all those things. And you know what? They believe it doesn't work. And so they'll use any excuse not to believe. And if they can use my life as an example for not to believe, they'll use it. And so our life needs to reflect, really, the doctrine of the Lord. What I believe should be the the, the, the lifestyle of my house. Do I really believe it, or is it just a show? Do I really put those things into action? Do I really emphasize, you know, uh, loving my wife? Do I really emphasize raising my children, emphasizing living a holy life in the, in, in the movies that I watch? Thank you, brother. The movies that I watch, the music that I listen to. We talk about practical things that nobody wants to get into. Why? Ew, music. I don't, you know, that part, I don't like God to tell me what to listen to. I don't want God to tell me what movies I watch. I'd rather just leave that aside. But as you know, that's part of the home. 
That's part of your lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle do we show? Well, the world's going to judge us based on how we live. And verse 8, he's another motive. It says that our opponents may be ashamed having nothing evil to say about us. So another motive for living a Christian life, another motive for living uh, and teaching the word of God is that our enemies might be ashamed of themselves. Uh, the, the idea here is that they will not be able to speak evil of you. But they will say, I know that guy. I know those Christians. They're always like this, 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 and this. They're always, and then you're not like that. All of a sudden, you don't fit the mold. And now they can't say anything about you. Ooh, that guy prays. And he doesn't cuss. And he loves his wife. <laughs> and he actually doesn't call her names. <laughs> he actually uses terms of endearment for her. Oh, goodness. And the world will shut their mouth. And they will be ashamed that they actually thought that you were actually one of those hypocrites again. That's a very important reason why to live a Christian life. Why this doctrine is so important so that the word of God may not be put to shame, they may not be blasphemed, but they would be put to shame for believing those things that uh, it doesn't work. You know, Christians say, oh, you know, people, not Christian, people say, oh, I tried the Christian thing, it doesn't work, everybody's a hypocrite at church, everybody's gossiping, lying about each other, sleeping around with each other, smoking pot with each other, oh, it's all, it doesn't work. Uh, but that's how the world sees it. That's how the world sees it. Oh, that guy? Oh, yeah, he gets high with those guys on the weekend. Yeah, he goes to church, but man, we can buy from him too. And that is a shame to the word of God. That's a black eye to the gospel. And yet those people have something to say about the word of God. Look at verse 10. And here's one that's beautiful. Verse 10 says that they may adorn, they may adorn the doctrine of God and our Savior in all things. The word adorn here has to do with jewelry has to do with jewelry. Okay, adorn the doctrine of God. What does that mean? Well, when you adorn something, is you want to emphasize the beauty of it, right? Okay, um, ladies wear jewelry. A jewelry is an, an uh, it, it accentuates the lady's uh, beauty, right? Jewelry accentuates the lady's beauty, just an adornment, right? Uh, pretty ladies, nice jewelry. It adorns the beauty of the lady. The doctrine of God here is what we're trying to emphasize. The good works, the good teachings, the good lifestyle that we present to the world, what does it adorn? The doctrine of God. It makes the gospel appealing to people. Ooh, I like the way that guy uh, really respects his wife, really corrects his children, really lives out his faith. It actually makes it appealing. What? I, I mean... I've never seen that kind of behavior. It, really, I mean, in our world today, it doesn't take much for the world to take notice of how you love your wife because nobody, the world doesn't do that. The world does not do that. And it doesn't take too much to, to realize that the world is going to look at the adornment of your life and say, that is, that's a good thing. I want to know what, how do they do that? How many believers have come to faith in Christ because of the adornment of the home, how the husband led his wife, how the husband taught his children, how the husband was a good, good leader in the home. And they come to the home and they see the peace, they see the love, they see the joy in that home. And they go, I want to have a home like that. How do you guys do that? Oh, come with us to church on Sunday or come do Bible study with us. We'll show you how we started. It wasn't like that here all the time. It wasn't like that home like that. It was, 
it's something that we began to follow the Lord and just putting his word into action. And he created this environment in the home. I mean, when somebody walks into the home, what do they think? Oh, chaos, this and that. And I'm talking about, my house is chaotic. Don't get me wrong. I have five kids. It's, it is chaotic to some degree or another. But is it a peaceable home? Is it a peace that you can have and you go into, you know what? Just things are right. Things are in order. Not just in order in the home. But things in order in how they should work. Behavior. That's how we're to be. Now, let's go to the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. The doctrine of our lives. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, and righteously, and godly in this present age. Okay, so behind the good deeds, behind the good works, behind how we live, this is the doctrine. Okay, behind it all, behind the scenes, what did we believe? This is what we believe that the grace of God has brought salvation to all men, has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yes, God wants all men to be saved. The grace of God has appeared to all mankind. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. No doubt about that. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteousness and godly in this present age. Now, there are... Key words in this in, in this little this little three verses from verse eleven to fourteen, there are wonderful words that we should underline for our further study, but for emphasis too. One is the word appearance, appearance or appear. You find that in verse eleven, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Verse thirteen, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing. Same word, has appeared, has manifested. One is the grace of God. The other one is the glory. And the Christian is to live in between those two things, in between the grace of God and the glory that's to be revealed. This is, the beautiful, this is probably one of the most beautiful passages in the whole New Testament. If we get it, it will be a tremendous blessing to us. We live the fact that the grace of God has appeared. When did the grace of God appear? What's that? That's right, at the incarnation. At the incarnation, the grace of God appeared. Remember it says in John 1 that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, when he took on flesh, literally the grace of God appeared on the scene, on the earth, to all mankind to bring salvation. It's appeared. But we also look forward to the glory, the grace and the glory. Sounds like a book, huh? The grace and the glory. We live between the grace and the glory. We live because of the grace of God has appeared, praise God, and we look forward to the glory that's going to be revealed. That's how the Christian is to live, between the grace and the glory. Just remember those two things, between the grace and the glory. Now, this has to do with some response. We have to just, it's not just a, a okay, I live between the grace and the glory. There's actually a response that we need to have. Uh, number one, it's going to affect our daily life. Teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Now, it's something that it teaches us. The grace of God actually teaches us something. 
most people have really misunderstood grace for a long time. We did people, oh, I have grace. So what, I've sinned. I have grace. Yes, the grace of God is it's, it's, it's for us sinners, but the grace of God is actually a teacher. Look what it says, teaching us. The word there is discipline, to discipline us, like Hebrews 12. Talk about discipline. It disciplines us to do what? To deny ungodliness, to deny ungodliness. It actually makes us do a few things, but one of them is un- to deny ungodliness. We are to do two things with it. They are, uh, we're to renounce or deny, and we're to live in a righteous way. So the grace of God is supposed to do two, two effects in your life. The grace of God is there to help you deny worldliness and ungodliness. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's also to strengthen you to live righteously. So it, it has a two, two-prong effect in your life. If it's working out all right, the grace of God is to do that. Uh, we're to live by grace every day, but we're to keep two things in mind, to teaching us to deny ungodliness. Now, let's talk about what that means. Um, let's go to the next slide. Search, there it is. Renounce or deny. One bad aspect and one good aspect. Deny and then live. Godliness. The word ungodliness, the word asabea, it literally means, uh, it's the opposite, it literally, it's the opposite of godliness. It's the opposite of being godly. Uh, the word godly is uh, Eusebius, like, you know, the church father Eusebius, his name meant godly. Asabea means the opposite of that, to live less like God, to have a, an appearance in your life that is less and less like God. Okay, that's ungodliness. And uh, uh, people get caught up with things that are mundane. Think about it for a moment. How many people, on, whether I'm just going to use Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever maybe, get caught up with mundane, worldly things? Now you can say, well, it's not a sinful thing. Yeah, it may not be sinful, but it's less of God in your life. Less and less of God. Now that pattern of behavior will become an ungodly pattern of behavior taken to its extreme. You want less and less of God. Now, is my life becoming less and less of God or becoming more and more of God? That's how I determine if I'm being ungodly or godly. Is my life becoming full of God? Simple, full of God. Meaning that I, the things of God I want in my life, I want more. I want more of God. I want more of God. Amen? Now, we all would agree. Yes, Pastor, I want more of God. But is it really happening? When it comes to that opportunity to say, I want more of God, I'm going to take it like a Bible study, a fellowship time, a prayer time, a reading time? Or do I go, well, i got to get caught up in this other thing. This other thing becomes more important. Surely it's not a sin to do maybe that. It's, it's maybe a benign thing, some neutral thing. But over time, more of that in your life becomes less and less of God. You substitute it. You know what I'm Substitute? Well, I could do that, but... I could do this too. It's more fun. It's actually more entertaining. I would do that. And slowly, our hearts gravitate to that. Why? Because our old nature is there. Our old nature wants that. Our old nature desires that. It gets more and more. And all of a sudden, like somebody on the, on the beach, going in the water, you realize that you were at a station number seven, and all of a sudden you're at station number 55. How did that happen? Well, you drifted off with more and more of ungodly things. You just filled it up. Now, 
fill yourself with godly things, it will produce more godliness. Sounds simple, right? But every day we make those choices, a thousand little choices. See, people think, well, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to do drugs. I'm not going to do that. And of course, praise God for that. That will be ungodly. But they think that's the big, the big ones are going are to be the ones. But I, over a period of my life and people, seeing people's lives, it's the thousand little choices that they make. A thousand and one little choices of either godly or ungodly. See, people look at the big one. Like, oh, man, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to go into homosexuality tomorrow. I'm pretty sure none of us are going into that. Right? Oh, I mean, okay. Um, but what godly thing are you going to pursue tomorrow? Or are you going to pursue the ungodly thing? Yeah. Whether it's sinful or benign, it's an ungodly thing. Less of God. Less and less of God. Well, Pastor, you want to tell I should live at the church? I said, live at the church? <laughs> but why not, right? <laughs> Come over. Um, but be filled with God. Godliness. Now, the grace of God is to teach you how to deny that. Turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And we're running quickly out of time. My goodness. Where did the time go? All right. It happens all the time. You just have to fight through it. Psalm 1. Just so they don't hear my, my boring voice. Somebody want to read that? Verses 1 through 3. Just out loud. Here you go. If you want to read it, stand up and read it so we all can hear it. Okay? You want to read it? Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Go ahead. Stand up. Don't be ashamed. Amen. Do you see the, the, the two things here? One, Psalm 1 tells us, do this and don't do that. What does it say? Do this? Meditate on the word of God. Don't do. Don't take the counsel with the ungodly. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is to teach us those two things. Deny ungodliness. Hey, don't walk according to the counsel of the wicked. And two, meditate on the word of God. Two-prong effect. Turn to Joshua 24. See, the Old Testament is full of this. I mean, I could barely touch him. It was Joshua 24. Famous passage. Joshua 24, verse 14. Everybody want to turn there real quick and read it for me? Joshua 24. Famous passage. Quoted in every single... See those little homes with a, with a little decal on it or a little, um, little sign on it over the, over the door. Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. Or would do that? Anybody? Joshua 24. Nobody wants to read it? Joshua 24, 14, and 15. Stand up and read it. Don't be ashamed. So we all can hear it. 24, verse 14 and 15. 14 and 15, yeah.
That's it. It's a beautiful passage. We all know it. But that was the grace of God. The grace of God operating in the Old Testament was to, to really define the line with Israel. Israel, where are you going to stand? Are you going to go with the gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites and all these other gods that you came out of, the God of Egypt, all the stuff that you did? Or are you going to really live for the Lord? Now stop doubting the Lord. Stop meddling in those two opinions and really make a commitment to what the Lord wants you to do. Now this is telling the people of God. It wasn't, it wasn't the Canaanites or some pagan nation. These were the people of God. They were torn. They were torn because they were pulled into worshiping other gods and being uh, uh, slaves to the other gods. Now, nobody wants to be slaves to the other gods, but they were literally becoming their slaves by following them and worshiping them. Now, the book of Proverbs has a ton of this. The book of Proverbs is probably the most filled with one. And I'll just, I'll just read very quickly. Uh, Proverbs 4, verse 10. Uh, it says, Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right path. When you walk your steps, you will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instructions, and don't let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Talking about wisdom. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. The way of wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Now, this is Proverbs is full of that. I just read a portion of it, uh, but it's the same thing. It's, it's teaching us righteous standard of God. Love it. Approach it. Live it. Bring it close to your heart. Stay away from the path of the wicked. Stay away from the darkness. It even says the darkness don't even know why they're stumbling. Uh, the, the, the wicked are walking in darkness. They don't even know why they're stumbling. They don't know exactly what makes them stumble. But we know that it's, it's, it's a path of sin. And whoever's on that path of sin is going to stumble. It's going to live a difficult life. Now, uh, you're going to go back to Titus. It's to, we are to deny ungodliness, but we are also to deny worldly passions, worldly lust. We talked about that on Sunday. Worldly lust, worldly passions. Now, this idea has to do with desire. Desire worldly things. Desire worldly things. It's a, um, an excessive desire for worldly things. Now, there's nothing wrong with things. We all have them. You're all wearing them. You all drove on something today, right? There's nothing wrong with things. It, something's wrong with the things when the things have us, when the things grab a hold of us. And that is a, 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 an a, a, a excessive desire for wanting things. You know, and we all get caught up in this. This is all we caught up in this, is the fact that we all want to live for pleasure. We all want to live for power. We all want to live for possessions. It's a, it's a tremendous desire for those things. It's, again, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life in First John chapter 2. Now, last, on Sunday, we talked about the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, right, which is basically wanting to have things on your own terms, not on God's terms. See, God wants to give us good things. God wants to give us godly things. God wants to give us good things for us to enjoy. Nothing wrong with them. Uh, in fact, uh, think about intimacy between a husband and wife. It's, it's godly given. It's something God desires, something God wants to, uh, husbands and wives to, to do. Why? Keeps them close. Nothing wrong with it. If it's in the Lord. Outside of God. It's a sin that not only you sin against the Lord, you sin against your own body. It's a very serious sin. But as you think about it, it's the same action. What in the world? It's the same action, but in one thing, it's holy, it's sanctified, it's good. In another action, it's actually a path to hell. How can that be? 
Well, it has all to do with the Lord. It has to do with our faith. It all has to do with if, it got, if it's God-given or not given. Did I take it on my own account, or did God allow that in my life? We talked about less of the eye, less of the flesh, either on my terms or God's terms. The other one we didn't talk about is the pride of life. The pride of life has to do with where do we receive the security in this world. The boastful pride of life has to do with security in this world. Where's our security? The reason why it's stated in lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, is because we tend to have our security where? Here. That's right. I can touch it, grab it, spend it, charge it. That's my security. 401k. That's my security. My pension. That's my security. SSI. What's that? Degree. That's my security. Hey, man, I have a degree in such and such and such. That's my security. I'm going to get a great job. I'm going to do this. That's my security. That's what the Bible's talking about. It says the boastful pride of life. If you have those things, there is nothing wrong. Right? But if you begin to trust them as your source of life, that, my friend, you've gone the wrong way. Right? Your paycheck may say Edison. Right? It may say Edison on it. Did we go and bow down at the, you know, at the electric pole and say, thank you, Edison, for my paycheck this week? Of course, we won't do that. We wouldn't do that. We, you know, Joel may not do that. But what if he starts trusting in, in that? Oh, I got that check coming. Don't need to pray. I got that check coming. How many people live like that? That's the world. The world's mentality is that. I got that check. I got that thing coming. I got my 401k. I got my thing in the bank. I got this other thing coming. But in reality, who's the provider? The Lord. <laughs> I can have $300 million in the bank. I don't, by the way. I can have that in there. The temptation, this is why it's so difficult for wealth to handle wealth. It's so difficult. Okay? Everybody wants to be rich. right? But think of the temptation. Wouldn't your temptation be that if you get into a financial bind to trust in the $300 million? Why pray? Brother, you have this thing. We need to pray for our finances. Pray for what? I got $300 million. You see what I'm saying? Who's going to show up to a prayer meeting when you have $300 million? Should you show up to a prayer meeting even if you have $300 million? Absolutely. But where's that temptation would be? I can pray next week. I have 300 million. The Bible says don't trust in money. It's a fleeting thing. The Bible actually says uh, wealth takes up wings and it flies away. I can tell you so many people that would say amen to that verse. They just lost all their pension, all their security, all the stock, you know, the stock market. And they're still recovering from that. And there's one that's coming that's worse. At least we'll all be equal, right? At least we'll all be... I mean, you know, we know, hey, you know, just got the same, zero. You know, praise God, you know. Uh, but now you come to the prayer meeting, right? <laughs> now you come to the prayer meeting. But that's the way you got to treat it. You got to treat it like that today. You got to think, Lord, you gave me this money. You gave me this thing. But I know it's temporal. I know it's fleeting. I know you want me to use it for something, to provide for my family, to provide for the ministry, to give to missions, to provide for the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Jesus, for having food and dirty dishes at home and dirty dishes here. Uh, you know, pray for those things. Thank you, Lord. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, pray for those things. Thank you, Lord. Somebody ate. We ate. But those things are not to be our sole purpose in life. 
Okay, we're not to trust in those things. They're fleeting. That's where the pride of life comes in. You're trusting in those things. And the Bible says, don't do it, because that's of the world. And so this has to do with this. This has to do with worldly passions. See, we often think of passions like, oh, man, is it a hot girl or a hot guy or some kind of R-rated movie or something like that? Worldly passions. No, man. It has to do with the very things that we struggle with in life. It could be security. Where's your security today? Should I charge it? <laughs> Should I pay cash? That, people think that's security. But security is really what God has provided for us. Security is in the Lord. Security is in Christ. Okay? So uh, now we're to deny those things. The grace of God is to deny those things, but is to do another thing. It's to teach us how to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Three things. Three, I call this three-dimensional righteousness. Three-dimensional righteousness. What is it? We're to live soberly, soberly toward ourselves. I'm supposed to be soberly in my life. I have a responsibility to live soberly in my life. I'm not talking about necessarily wine, but you can get the idea of wine. It's, it's the idea of being in, in the right frame of mind, knowing who I am in Christ, knowing my weaknesses, knowing basically who I am in the Lord today, soberly. I don't think of myself too highly, but I also know the Lord loves me. I don't think, of my, I don't think myself too seriously, but I take my faith seriously. I'm sober about it. I'm sober about those things. Now it says to live righteously, righteously toward others. Let's have a good example toward others. Should live in a righteous way toward others and godly toward God. Okay? Soberly toward myself, righteously toward others, and godly toward God. Three-dimensional righteousness. The grace of God teaches us that. We're to do that, and we're to live it, and the grace disciplines us. It's the grace of God disciplining us to do that. That means it's training us. Okay? Don't think of the grace of God as just like, well, I got grace, and there's nothing I have to do. No, grace invites us to do something. Live soberly, righteously, godly. That's what it's supposed to produce in us. Verse 13 is a beautiful verse, probably the verse that our fellowship um, uh, was intended to live by, was the reason for the fellowship. Looking for the glorious, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Last point. Glorious appearing. The word glory has to do with heaviness. Heaviness. The word glory, kabod, heaviness. In the Old Testament, has to do with taking the Lord heavy. Okay? Don't take the Lord lightly. What's the idea? You ever tell you that word? Don't take him lightly. It comes from that idea. Don't take him lightly means you put some value to that person. Now, the most valuable person in the world is God. So to him belong the glory. But it also means the majesty and the brilliance of who he is. The Lord is glorious. The Lord is glory. We, uh, in Jeremiah says, we're not so glory in this, we're not the glory in that, we're to glory in the Lord. That means that there is a, 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 a radiance to our life if we're in relationship with God. There's a glory. This appearing of Jesus is with all glory. It's the glorious appearance, a brilliant, awesome radiant appearing of Jesus Christ. So this is the other part of it. First the grace appeared, now Jesus is going to appear. 
We have been saved because the grace of God has appeared. We are going to be saved because Jesus is going to appear. We're going to go with him, right? We're looking for that glorious appearing. Appearing, appearing, appearing. That's one of the most common terms for Jesus coming for us. Appearing, epiphania, the word. He is going to appear. When he appears, we'll be like him, right? And we'll be known just like he is known, right? When he appears. It's constantly in the Bible, appears. In fact, it's actually used more times than the rapture. The rapture is used in certain passages, but overwhelmingly it's either parousia, which is to meet him, like a, you meet a king, or epiphania. He's going to appear, and we're going to see him. All right? this, is the, this is the word here. We're going to see him because he's going to appear in all his glory. When the Son of Man comes, he will come with all his glory. It says in Matthew. And this is, uh, this is a glorious thing, but uh, I don't want to deviate too much from it, but um, Colts used this verse to twist it. So I'm just going to say it very, very quickly and we'll move on because this verse is the one that's, that's it's twisted a lot by cults, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, uh, Christian scientists, which has nothing to do with science or Christianity. It's, it's completely not, not that. It's Christian science, but that's what they call it. Uh, or spiritualists. They believe that Jesus is not God. But here's one example where it's overwhelmingly it's God. Okay, so maybe someone's watching, somebody's listening, can benefit from that. The cults would say, no, this verse is mistranslated. It should say, the glorious appearing of our great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Separating God and Jesus apart. The appearing of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Making it two people. Okay, that's how they would translate this verse. So if you meet somebody that doesn't believe Jesus is God, this is how they're going to do it. However, the book of Titus makes it very clear that Jesus is God. Okay, In each chapter, the word Savior is used for God and is used for Jesus. Two times in each chapter. So there's six verses, uh, literally six verses in, in, the, in the whole letter where it says Jesus is, or where it says God is the Savior and Jesus is the Savior. Okay, you want one example? Let's go there very quickly. In chapter one, in chapter one, uh, it tells us in verse three, in verse three, but in due time has manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Very clear. God, our Savior. There's no Savior but God, right? In verse 4, it says that the, the, to Titus, the true son in the faith and our common faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, our Savior. Jesus, our Savior. Chapter 3. Okay, chapter 3. Verse 4. It says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, God, our Savior. Verse 6, whom he poured out to us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Same pattern. The first Savior goes to God. The second Savior goes to Jesus. Same thing in chapter 2. Chapter 2 tells us that the Savior is God in verse 10. The doctrine of God, our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And each time, in each case, the pattern goes, the first Savior goes to God, the second Savior goes to Jesus. Chapter 2, first Savior goes to God, the second Savior goes to Jesus. Chapter 3, same thing. The pattern of Titus is both God 
and Jesus are our Savior. Why? You can, you can, you can believe it either way. You can say, well, there's got to be two Saviors. Or there's only one Savior, and that's God, and that's Jesus. Okay? In the, uh, not that this is a Greek lesson. By all means, you probably forget it tonight. But the syntax in the Greeks make, in the Greek make it very, very clear. There's only one definite article. It's the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe one will remember this. <laughs> so I'll say, in Greek, in Greek syntax, if there's only one preposition, the, the two nouns are the same person. Okay? That makes sense? If, if you wanted to make Jesus and God differently, you know how it would read? The God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. But in the Greek, this is a great blessing to my heart, there's only one definite article. <laughs> it's the God and Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Overwhelmingly, the Bible says Jesus is God. And you can go home tonight and give praise to the Lord because the one who hung on that cross was no one else than the creator of the universe. It was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the Bible says. Oh, what a, what a glory. What, that's a, man, somebody shout hallelujah, amen, right? That says amen, praise the Lord. That's how it's supposed to be. Now, verse 14, we're done with this. Who gave himself for us. This is another thing that's so beautiful. We say God sent his son and gave up his son, right, for us. God sent his son and he gave up his own son on our behalf. Here it says, he gave himself up. He gave himself up. Jesus Christ said, I do not have anybody else. Nobody can do this for me. I laid down my life. I put it down. I can raise it up again. He did it. Jesus did it. Now, there are other verses that says God you know, put Jesus through, this, uh, through the agony and the death of the cross, but you know who did it himself? Who did it to himself? He's the one who put himself through it. He gave himself up. That's a, go home and meditate on that. He gave himself up. In your worst sinful state, he loved you and gave himself up for you. That is amazing. The love of God, the love of Christ for you. Um, I don't know why he loves me. I really don't know why. One day we'll ask him. Amen? One day we'll see him face to face, and that will be the answer. Why did you love me? I'm such a sinner. Ding, ding, ding. That's the answer. God loves sinners. He loves sinners. He created us. The fall came. He redeemed us. It's all, it's all in Genesis. It's all in Genesis. It's all, it's all coming out to this, this beautiful end. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Now here's the idea. The purpose of his salvation, the purpose of God's salvation is to do two things. It's to save us, to go to heaven, true. But it's also to purify us so that we can be his own people, zealous for good works. It's to save us to go to heaven. It's to save us from sin, but to save us for something. We usually talk about Jesus saving me from my sin, right? He saved me from my sin. Praise God. That's true. It's 100% true, but don't ever stop there. Don't ever just say, he saved me from my sin. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm going to go home. Because you're missing the other part. He saved you from your sin, or sins, plural, yes. But he saved me for himself. That's, that's, a, that's another story, right? He saved me from my sins, but he saved me for himself. To do what? So I could be his own people, zealous for good works. 
See, God saved us to go to heaven. Yes. But God saved you to be Christ-like in this world. That's it. You can't deny that. You get away from that, you have a diff- you're on the wrong road, my friend. If you just said, God saved me from my sins, praise the Lord. You know what? I would agree with you, but I want you to insert a comma there. And he saved me for himself so I can be Christ-like in this world. That's the key. And I think sometimes as Christians in, in our theology, in our doctrine, sometimes, and especially our eschatology, sometimes can get in the way of that wonderful truth. Because, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. You know, Jesus is coming. Yes, it's true. But don't stop being Christ-like. Do not stop being Christ-like. When you see the signs coming, when you see the road up ahead saying Jesus is coming, it's the time to get more serious. It's the time to get more ready. It's the time to be more Christ-like. Why? Because there's not much time left. Why? Because the world needs salt and light. Why? Because your family needs to be saved. Why? Because people need to see godliness in this world. There's less and less godliness in this world. Think about it. There's less and less godliness. Every day there's less and less godliness. There's people who've fallen away. There's marriages who are on the rocks. There are Christians who are abandoning their marriage, leaving their husbands, leaving their wives. There's less and less godliness. And so as Christians, we're to be zealous. The word zealous means to be absolutely in love with, being, with doing good works because that's Christ-likeness. It's to, the, the appeal is to be like Christ. Do good works, good deeds. To be saved? No, because we are saved. That's where we do good works. And so Christians are to serve. And you can start serving where? First in your home. First in your home. Be that in your home first. And then serve the body of Christ as well. Not just, it's not one or, you know, it's, well, it's one or the other. No, it's both. But it starts in the home. And it starts in the home because when you start serving the Lord and serving the body of Christ, don't neglect your family. Don't neglect those who are around you and love you. And many times we make that mistake that we neglect the home. And I can get into that kind of thinking too. Don't, don't think I'm, you know, excused from that. My wife has to constantly remind me, you know. I have to, it's a two-pronged effect. I have to serve the body here, but serve the body at home. I got five little disciples that need my attention as well. Plus my wife, six. Yeah, so uh, five little ones that need my attention at home. What would profit me if I gained and I disciple the whole world and lose my own family? Profits me nothing. Profits me nothing. And so that's why uh, this here has to do with his own special people. Zealous for good works. Be zealous for good works. Be zealous to be Christ-like tonight, tomorrow, at home, in the morning. Be zealous to do what Christ would do, Christ-like in this world. Let's pray. Father, in this day and age in which we live in, Lord, it's so difficult, Lord, to apply these things to our lives. It's, it becomes, Lord, a temptation of the world to get us away from the things that we need the most. Yet, Lord, we're to be on the offense. We're to deny we're to deny these things in our lives. And we're to live righteously. So we're to live in the defense. We're to live in the offense. We're to do and we're to deny God, ungodliness and this lust, Lord God, that comes into our lives, that wants our attention, that wants our affection. So, Lord, we pray tonight. The Lord, if we're struggling to that tonight, that the, 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 the cares of this world have, have overtaken us, 
And Lord, we, we seem to be looking over the fence as it may be, uh, desiring those things that you have not given us, those things, Lord. Um, Lord, please help us and help us to turn away from it and, and, and live righteously, soberly, and godly and in our day and age, Lord, looking for this hope. And Lord, if we have this hope, we will live pure. We will live godly. We will live holy because you're coming, because we're going to give account and because we're going to see you face to face. Lord, this is, this is the epitome of godliness and holiness. We're going to see you. We're going to give answers to you, Lord. But Lord, we're going to be in your presence, Lord, in your glory and in your kingdom, Lord. Uh, Lord, help us to be tonight a people zealous to be Christ-like, to be godly. Lord, you want a people for that. You desire a people in these days to be like Christ. And Lord, and I can't even consider myself to be like Christ, but yet I'm to live in that way by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm to submit to you, Lord, and to live in that way so the world can see and the world can be saved. Those around me, those who see me, those who work with me, those who um, study with me, those at home with me are to see that. Lord, please discipline us, Lord, and, and teach us and train us by your grace, Lord, to do those things so that we will, Lord, be more godly, more soberly, more righteous toward people so that they would have no excuse, Lord, so they would come to know you, Father. We pray that that is the reality of our lives today, Lord. We, on this Wednesday, Lord, of August 6, 2014, Lord, uh, Lord, we desire to live godly. We want to be a, a people zealous for Christ-likeness. Lord, work that in us. We ask these things, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.